Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. Thank you all for listening, reading. I hope you're all enjoying. I'm here today with a new friend of mine. His name is Michael Berger. He is a freelance lighting designer and director out of Los Angeles. Thank you so much for making the time to sit down with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. I recently was made aware of you when I saw an amazing Ayrton Boredom Buster online that was just spectacular. And I felt the need to reach out and find out more about who you are and how you came up with such a beautiful layout and your song selection. So let's, let's start with that. When did you decide that you want, we were going to do the Boredom Buster and then how did you decide on the song and the design? Sure. So the, the Boredom Buster truly came out of, I, I think what its intent was, which was busting boredom. Um, <laughs> it was right, right at the beginning of the pandemic. I had reached out to uh, some colleagues at Four Wall and asked if I could demo one of the new consoles, the MA3, to just kind of get my hands on it. And I was looking for uh, an opportunity to do some programming and do some design work and you know, basically flex the muscles that I hadn't flexed in a couple of weeks. Um, music wise, I'm a, I'm a pretty closeted, well, not closeted. Uh, I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. Um, <laughs> that's, it's pretty public. Everyone knows that. Um, so it was, uh, it's it in was the public easy, now. It's in the public now. <laughs> yeah. it, it was easy to kind of drop that one in there. And uh, you know, her live stuff in particular is very easy to cue to. So it was, mm-hmm. Uh, an easy thing for me to just kind of dive in and, you know, start to think about how I could make it look uh, what it was in my head, which is at the end of the day, what we're all doing all the time. Right on. Well, then it it served its exact purpose. That is exactly what the boredom buster was for. Thank you so much for taking the time to put together such a spectacle. So one of the things I really love about the boredom buster is it requires designers to program and programmers to design mm-hmm. because we were not sitting in a room together with two or the three or four people that would normally do that. So which direction was that for you? You're normally a director, correct? Yeah. So most of my, I would say that the majority of my work is as a lighting designer or a lighting director. Okay. Um, and we can, we can dive into what those differences are in, in a moment. Um, I also really enjoy programming. I don't want to be a programmer. Um, the, there's a lot, I, I, it is very challenging to, for me, take what is in my head and figure out the keystrokes to, to get on stage or on screen. Um, 
I enjoy the process of fiddling with the buttons and effects to, to make something pretty. Uh, but I, I can't, I would be very challenged to sit next to someone and have them say, okay, well, I want, you know, you take that line of lights and do this kind of offset and whatever, and then me to know exactly how to do that. So when I'm programming for myself, it's a little bit more trial and error of, you know, <laughs> what, what looks cool. Like, all right, if I do a group of two and a wing of minus two and, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, which I, I'm told by some programmers that I work with is how their brain works as well, but... <laughs> It's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to say it out loud too many times, but you're not far off. That's kind of how yeah. a lot of us do it. Uh, so it's been it's been fun for me to kind of dive back in to the programming stuff. Um, as a designer, I really do like to know a little bit of how the, the nuts and bolts work. Um, at, at the very least, so I know what I'm asking for. Not, not so I can tell someone how to do it, but so it's like, oh, okay, this thing that I'm asking for is really complicated and maybe I should give them a couple minutes to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. That's a great, that's a great uh, topic there. Is that you have to realize when you ask for something with a, a nice chase, with a zoom that follows with an intensity ripple, you have to know the appropriate expectations there as to how long that should take. Yeah. How, how long it should take. You don't need to know how to do it. And I think, you know, in the times where I've been a programmer for a designer, that like designer, you know, kind of over your shoulder, trying to tell you where the buttons are, how to do it is, is not always the best thing. There's now, don't get me wrong. There's definitely times for that level of collaboration. Um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, when I'm like pulling my hair out, trying to figure out how to do something. Yes, please come help. Um, uh, but yeah, I, th I think a as a designer, kind of having the knowledge of what what the length of that process is helps you better manage the team that you're surrounding yourself with. I've been on the opposite side of that one where somebody's like, okay, so do X, Y, Z, A, B, D, F, and G, and uh, I'll be back in a minute to see if you've done it. Like, whoa, 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 <laughs> wait a minute. Those yeah, are all really big things. and. I'm a pretty good programmer, but I mean, a minute, that's not, that's unrealistic expectations and you're only going to frustrate yourself first and me second. Right. If you have unrealistic expectations. Well, and the, the, so. the other piece of that too is, you know, if depending on what kind of show you're working on, if it's a TV show and your timeline is very limited, the, that note that you give to do that beautiful intensity ripple with the zoom chase and, you know, pan wave uh, may not be as important as adding backlight to all the band members or the host intro mark that's out in the audience. And if you give those notes in the wrong order, uh, you're going to get into that next pass or into dress rehearsal and none of the backlights are in and the host isn't lit. And, oh, but they got that cool ripple effect that we saw in one shot. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's another very important topic is your priorities have to completely switch as a designer and programmer when it comes to the different disciplines. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, let's, that's a great segue into why I really wanted to talk to you is looking over your website and your social media platforms. You are very diverse. Uh, multidisciplinary would be a, a better term. It seems like you've done a little bit of everything in your career. Was that by design or did you just keep falling into new fields? Uh, I would say definitely a little bit by design. Uh, some of the fields that I fell into were 
were a little accidental. Uh, and then, you know, I, I found a love for them. Um, my kind of foray into television was almost accidental. Uh, I had trained and wanted to be a theatrical lighting designer and was in a, a college program at that point and was visited by Bob Dickinson and Noah Mitz. They came in to do a uh, workshop. And I was like, oh, this is not what I thought TV lighting was. And that kind of really flipped me on my head of like, okay, I can do the emotional musical lighting that I love about theater on TV. And it matches, it adds the speed that I, that I, or the, it brings speed to it that does not exist in theater, mm. uh, which, which, you know, is the one thing that kind of drives me crazy about theater is like, we sit there and everything moves at a very slow pace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, now you can manicure looks and do things in theater that you never have time for in television. Um, so it's a little bit, you know, what are, what are you trying to get out of that experience? But to answer your question about the, the multidisciplinary thing, I, there, there are parts about theater that I love and there are parts about television that I love. And there's parts about, you know, lighting a garden outdoors in Miami that is fascinating to me. And what I really try to do and what I hope brings, you know, a new look to my clients is pulling from those different experiences to the other shows. So if I'm learning something about how to manage a crew or manage a process on a TV show that's got 2,500 moving lights, I, I'm going to hopefully take some of those things back to my theater show that has five moving lights and figure out how to make that more efficient uh, you know, whether that's less time in the theater or just saving money for the client in some way that eventually gets you to a better product. So your entire schooling was theater. You didn't intend to come into television when you did. Is that accurate? A absolutely. Well, the, the second part is definitely accurate. The, the people at Carnegie Mellon would be sad if I said that we only learned theater. Uh, I... <laughs> And it's funny because specifically for the lighting program, I, what I would say to anyone is that they teach you how to light, period. Like that is what the curriculum is. It is how to walk into any situation and be comfortable lighting it. Okay. And, and I think that that is, that really gave me the confidence to go out into the world and, and just do whatever. Um, you know, you, you, you know how to make something look good. You maybe have never lit a fashion show before, but you know what's important. You know, you know faces, background. Like you, you're lighting for an audience. The audience is just a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine, though, that there was a fair amount of culture shock going from a, a theater workflow to a television workflow. Can you kind of fill us in on the first time you realized the, the, the fast pace of television as opposed to a theater? Definitely. Um, my, it's funny, my, my exposure to television had a nice arc to it, uh, completely unintentionally. Um, but where I started working uh, when Bobby brought me on as an intern was in a period of the year that is a couple smaller theater shows that he was doing. <laughs> so my, my first TV show was the Kennedy Center Honors, which is, you know, straight 
pipes. Like it's, it's a very theatrical show. Mm-hmm. So initially I was like, oh, this is literally what I want to do. Like there's a stage, we're just pointing some lights at the audience. Like I get this, this is great. And I remember he kept saying to me, he's like, you got to come like do an arena show at some point. Like you need to see like what, <laughs> what the arena shows are like. I was like, I don't know, man, like this is awesome. And then we did the Tony Awards and it was like, you know, as a theater kid, I'm dying. Like this is, this is like where, where I want to be in my life. Um, but then, then I started moving into some of the music award shows and really seeing the, the pace at which that, that operates. And the biggest thing that I saw that was different for me is that the the lighting designer is is the captain of the ship, um, mm-hmm. but they are not driving the boat. They're not making sure the engine's working. Like they they are they're talking to the the owner of the ship company, uh, and they're making sure that it's pointed in the correct direction, um, mm-hmm. and that everyone on board is happy and is having a good time and and is is having their needs met. Uh, that was the first time where I I really noticed how much trust and collaboration you have to have with your own team. I think in theater, they stress a lot about collaboration with other departments and talking with the scenic designer and talking with the costume designer and making sure that you know your color of light is gonna reflect well on the color of their costume. Um, but what they often, I don't wanna say they often don't do, what wasn't as apparent to me until I got into TV particularly that designer programmer relationship of, Mm -hmm. you know, this, this song is, I'd I'd like to be blue and there's, you know, a cool snare hit in the middle that I'd like to accent and uh, let's, you know, try and use the magic blades in the verse. Uh, I'm going to go talk to the manager and I'll expect a pass from you in three minutes. Um, and, And that, when I first saw that happen was like mind blowing of, oh, the programmer is lighting the show. And, and I know for myself and a lot of people that I work with, you know, we've really started to use the term lighting director in that role and, and trying to get rid of the terminology of board operator or programmer because they, they are lighting the show. They are creating what that look is on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to kind of be unspoken sometimes because it's so fast that the designer just has to know that the director is going to steer the ship in the proper direction because there's no time for both of them to be bouncing to where they need to be and back to the console and then to go receive information and then back to the console. They just have to almost osmosis transfer information. Yeah. It's, it's an implicit level of trust and communication that you have with that, with whoever is fulfilling that role. It, not only insofar as that they they know what you're looking for visually, uh, but also that they they know who you are as a person and how to how to you know interpret what you're saying. Um, also, like specifically, if I if there's a situation where like I give a note that has you know come from management or come from some other department, and it's like we're not arguing with this note, like we're just doing it. Uh, someone that can understand the difference between that and like well. I just really didn't like the color of this song or, or this gobo that you're using and, and knowing when to, to have a conversation versus when to just do the note and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a fairly fortunate transition from one to the other. It sounds like you got, uh, you got to dip your toes in the water and then decide to fully immerse yourself. 
Uh, yeah, I, I would say the decision was, was definitely entirely mine because I had done a couple months of internships and Bobby, you know, kind of pulled me aside after one show and he was like, I cannot tell you to move to Los Angeles, but if you move to Los Angeles, there might be work for you. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Like, cause that, that was the, you know, we're all freelance. Like we're all, you know, making it for ourselves. And I, I remember that moment of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to LA. And I went out, I came out here the first three and a half weeks. I worked every single day and then it was summer. And at the time he wasn't really doing a lot during the summer, but I didn't know that. So the phone stopped ringing for two months and I was like, oh God, like, what have I done? I've, I've made a mistake. I'm not going to make any money. Like, how will I live? Uh, and then, you know, the fall hit and everything picked back up again. And, you know, here we are six years later now. So you're so, in LA yeah. with one contact. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I mean, I, I had, <laughs> oh, man. he was pretty much, the, you know, the contact at that point, the, uh, my school has a really great alumni clan that that's what they call themselves. Uh, and they are very good at not at not protecting the people that come out, but being aware of the people who move out here and supporting if there's, yeah, supporting if there's work, you know, okay. pointing them out there, they, Chris Werner and I, who Chris also went to Carnegie in that first couple years, you know, we started doing a lot of work together where I would kind of come on as an assistant and we've now really kind of gotten to the point where we're collaborating at, at an equal level on a lot of projects and I'll hire him for things. He'll hire me for things. And we, that, that relationship of designer programmer exists really well between the two of us as, as a pair of designers, because I know his aesthetic, he knows my aesthetic, and I know I can put him on a show site and it's going to look the way that we both want it to look and vice versa. That is the sort of story that you usually hear in a, in a singer songwriter setting, not necessarily a writing director <laughs> like you actually packed up with your suitcase and moved out to LA with the one big chance and you and you you grabbed on with both hands and went for it yeah no it was it definitely felt a little bit like that uh that those first couple months of of not really knowing what and, and there's no book no one tells you how this is supposed to work mm -mm. there's no every single person has a different story and a different way to how they got to where they are um, so you, you don't even know how to ask. You don't, you don't know what to say to your friends. Of like, are you, you know, are you in the union? Like, is it, do we apply to a union? You know, how does that work? Like all of those things, it's, it's so mystical in some way. <laughs> it's kind of fun thinking about the movie that would have taken place of you moving to LA with your suitcase and then you're working real hot and heavy for, three weeks and then all of a sudden you're just sitting there and you're like, Oh my God, I'm going to be a starving artist. I can already tell I'm going to have to call my parents and they're going to, they're going to try and have to bail me out or something while I'm here in LA <laughs> living under a bridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you just, you had no idea. And that, I mean, that was to tie it back to your first question. That was really one of the times where I started to diversify in, uh, in the work that I was doing you know, I, I looked for some of the 99 seat theaters in LA and some, I did some work with a couple architectural firms and picked up some programming job jobs and things wow. like that. Um, 
just because I didn't know. And I, and I knew, you know, I knew I had to make money. I knew I had to make money to survive and I didn't know what was happening in television. So I was like, okay, uh, I'm just going to cold email a bunch of theaters. And, you know, I, I spent a couple months working with Lightswitch when they needed some overhire work. So that was, you know, all parts of my early career that kind of made me into the multifaceted designer that I am today. And cold calling and cold emailing is, is not that difficult nowadays. I would imagine that you could just kind of Google someplace that you had driven past on, on the freeway and like, Hey, that place looks interesting. Google them. I would imagine you could go on LinkedIn and find somebody who works there and just say, Hey, I'm in town. I don't know that many people, but I, I've got some skills. Is that kind of, uh, is that kind of the story? Yeah, it, it, it was funny at the time. Again, I still, I was still very interested in theater. So I, right. my cold email started with theater and I actually went on a very complex search thing. I went on MTI, which is Music Theater International's website. And I searched for shows that I wanted or that I liked in and around the Southern California area. And when I saw the companies that were doing the kind of shows that I wanted to light, I would then, you know, find that company. And at, at the time I was sending letters, uh, it seems like five years ago wasn't, you know, that long ago, but that was still, at least for me, it was a like oh resume, my God. That's right. you know, cover letter. And that, that actually came from, I wish I knew who it was that said it, but it was at some LDI and it might've been Ken Billington that was like, it's like, if you send me an email, there's a pretty good chance that I'll, I'll miss it. But if you send me a letter, it's going to sit on my desk until I do something with it. And, huh. and I was like, I'm like, right. That is, that is very, and even today that is true. It's so easy to just file away emails or forget that, you know, it, in, an, in an inbox of hundreds, it's easy to lose. But I have a very small pile of, you know, actual letters on my desk. And a lot of it is like bills and, you know, charity things and whatnot. But that, that pile is, is like, I have to address this thing that's in front of me. How interesting the, the arch there, because it used to be everything done by letter. Then it was everything done by email and letters were rare. And now we've come the full opposite where our, our emails are full and our, our letter boxes are like half are, are the, the important stuff now. It, yeah. And it's interesting, especially I feel in like a cold email situation or a thank you note situation. Um, the, the actual physical letter is so much more meaningful because of the amount of time that it takes. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, when I get like a letter from someone, even if it's just a, Hey, thanks for, you know, showing us around or letting us come observe for the day or whatever it was, I like that person took the time to, find the note card, write it, find my address, you know, put a stamp on it, put it in the mailbox. That shows so much more effort than just finding someone's email. Um, not saying that that's a, a bad way to approach a conversation, but it definitely, it definitely shows you care. Uh, that's important. That is very important to know or to show that you do care. I would imagine that has a lot to do with the way you moved up the ladder. I, I'm just using that as an example of your attention to detail. 
I would imagine that it's the little things like that that people started noticing about you, and that's why people kept bringing you back. Would you say that's part of your uh, your unique abilities is that you do show a, a higher care level? I, I would hope so. Uh, I mean, I would be. <laughs> it's it's funny. One of the things that uh, you lose. And this was a, a a challenge for me when I first started, uh, and and some of the the folks that I work with early on, I know would say this, is it is, it's tough to go from, twenty one years of your life where you are getting feedback all the time, to an environment where you get next to no feedback, positive or negative. Interesting. And in my first couple of years out here, I didn't know how to deal with that. I was craving that, okay, well, you've written this cue list, very nice. So, you know, these things are good and this one is bad and you probably should have done this here. That, you know, I was, I was craving that rubric. Whether it be positive or negative feedback, I, I just wanted to know how I was doing. Um, so it took me a couple years to, to really figure out like, oh, if they call for the next show, I did it well. You know, I, I did the thing mm-hmm. that I was supposed to do. Um, and, you know, you lose some shows and you pick up some shows and you, you, you don't get hired by some people and you get hired by some, some other people. Uh, and, and it took me a while to really kind of comprehend that there wasn't a rubric and there wasn't a, a grade sheet and no one was going to tell me how I did on that gig. Um, no, it's not a gradient scale at all. It's a pass-fail situation. You either yeah. get called back or you just don't. Yeah, and, and I, so I don't know. I guess I, how I translated that into my work as an assistant was was really trying to be open with the people that I was working for. Of okay, what do you need? Like, how do I, how do I fill the void in your process? Uh, whether that is, you know, doing lighting work, focusing lights, building a cue list, or making sure that you, you know, want for nothing as it were. So that mm-hmm. like, if you know, you're, there's always a water bottle, you know, if you look around for coffee, like I'm going to go get that coffee or make sure you have lunch. Those, those things seem very interny and true, you know, true. That is where I started, but what you start to then, and what I'm starting to notice in a position of hiring people is, Oh, the people that are attentive to those sorts of things are also like, they wind up being the good lighting people too, because they just like they are noticing that there's no water bottles at the tech table. They're going to then notice like, Oh, the back of that shot doesn't have anything in it. And we need some beams of light or that person doesn't have any backlight or, you know, the little things that are, that you take for granted. Um, the, the parallel yeah. between that and, uh, what did I, is a, a colleague who I won't name because I, I don't want anyone to know the secret, but he has a, what he refers to as the trash can test. And on day one at a tech table with a new intern, he'll make a comment about the, either the lack of a trash can or the, the trash that is accumulating on the tech table. And depending on how that person deals with the, tra- you know, the trash can is usually a pretty good indication of how they're going to be during the rest of the week. Um, wow. Some will say, so, some will like clean the table once, uh, not do it again. Some will go and get a trash can. Uh, some will 
make sure that there's never ever a piece of trash on the table, even if that is them just picking up the trash and walking away and depositing it somewhere else. Uh, and some will ignore the request entirely. And it is, it's one of those things that I never really like, it's like, oh, that's such a simple thing that you don't think about, but it, it shows the attention to detail and it shows the attention to the bigger picture. It is. It's the little things that people notice when, uh, if you're the one who's going to just chuck it in the trash can and miss and then just leave it on the floor, that's probably the same way you're going to treat your shot. You're going to like, well, we missed it. Eh, we'll just make it up in post or something. We, we don't need to reshoot yeah. that. Interesting. That's a, that's a great little tidbit of information there for anybody <laughs> listening that, you know, pay attention to the garbage, pay attention to the mail, pay attention to every little detail and try and try and make everything a little bit better everywhere you go. I would imagine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's definitely, or my, it was my takeaway at the time was like, okay, if I, if I'm, if I'm tasked with doing this, this one thing, let me do that one thing in the best way that I can. Um, and eventually, you know, you get tasked with more and more and more and you, you start to be able to deal with all, you know, all of those things, or you really have to start looking down and saying, okay, well this, I have to do all of these things and I, and I only have the capacity to do some of them. So what can I either do faster or give to someone else that, that is on their way up? Like how can I invite someone else into my workflow? Yeah. Uh, anybody who's listening, Michael just uh, gifted us a very specific insight into the process because we are in the freelance world, we're not gifted with a, a quality assurance program or a, a questionnaire or a, a, an evaluation. We're not entitled to one. It's not in anybody's contract that we get an evaluation. If we don't get called back, they don't have to give any reason or justification. They just, yeah, you didn't pick up the garbage, so I'm not calling you back. And they'll never tell you that. Nobody will ever say, well, we didn't hire you because we don't like that your shirt was sloppy on Tuesday. You know? The, no, abs absolutely. There is no, and, and I've been, you know, I've had conversations with people before too that is like, you know, okay, we had this person on a show. Do we bring them back next year? Do we bring them on for this next project? And, and I know that those conversations happened about me. So now mm -hmm. that I am a part of those conversations, I'm uh, on the one hand, like trying to be cognizant of, of what a new person coming into the industry may or may not know, but also like that is the only opportunity you have with your coworkers to, to find out what makes them tick. Like that's, that's your feedback moment. Mm -hmm. uh, if your coworkers like, wow, I was just really annoyed that they kept sitting you know, on the aisle seat of the tech table and I, they had to keep moving uh, every time I wanted to get to the middle. And I'm like, oh God, I've been doing that for five years. <laughs> and, and, and that, you know, that's, yeah. how I try to, that's how I try to keep getting a little bit of feedback is like, okay, what is, what does my boss hate about what the intern did this week? And let me make sure that I'm not doing that too. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you'll never be told, well, you chew loudly so i'm not gonna hire you back because 
in our brains, we're going to come up with some other reason. It's like, well, maybe I was late or maybe I, something else that you're never going to come to the, the exact conclusion in your head. You're like, well, it's because I chew loud. I'm a loud chewer. Of course, that's why I didn't get called back. Right. And I would hope that if I'm in a position where I'm not bringing someone back to a project, I, I would hope that that person would reach out and feel comfortable asking why. Because I think that that's the only way we can all grow is if it's, mm -hmm. you know, I don't like, I'm sorry, I can't bring you back on this project. We just weren't, you know, we weren't at the same level. We weren't communicating well, but let's talk about how, you know, we can do that better. Like, like give everyone an opportunity to make themselves better. Yeah. I, I wish, I wish we were all that responsible and we could all be that aware of our, our own biases, but all too often that's not the case. Absolutely. But. It it's definitely not. And I think, I think a lot of that came from, for me, like I, I worked at a summer camp for six or seven years and they, they had a huge evaluation process. So you evaluated the people directly above you and that there was a whole like organizational evaluation tree. So that, that feedback came back to you. And this is like, you know, this is caring for kids in an overnight camp, but you're getting feedback that is, you know, on a rubric and you did, you did this thing well, you did this thing poorly. And you know what, if you did this a little bit better, we would consider promoting you to the next level. And I'm like, okay, that would be amazing to get that on, mm -hmm. you know, at work. Nope. Uh, doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Not that I've ever seen. No. Uh, and when it does, it is at the behest of an HR department of some other corporation, <laughs> and it's not real. <laughs> yeah, all too often, it's a, it's a sugar-coated version of the real reason. It's a, ah, we're going in a different direction, or we, ah, we couldn't afford you because you're too good. Like, yeah. Shut up. Shut I, up. I wonder, it's funny, I, I, someone called me the other day to ask about money. To, to they were bidding a show and they were curious like how to charge that that's a, a mystical thing to me of like how how you evaluate your own personal worth is yeah that's a tough that's one a conversation for another day um but i i had made a comment to him and i i hope i wasn't incorrect i don't i've been turned down very rarely based on cost okay like that conversation i feel usually turns into a you're a little bit too expensive can you do any better Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I've ever gotten a, well, no, there, there's definitely a couple, but for the most part, it's, it usually begets a conversation of why are you, why is it so expensive? Not sorry, you're too expensive. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong there, but. No, I think cost is usually the place that's most negotiable. If somebody wants you, they'll, they'll negotiate price with you. But yeah. if they go to you and say, sorry, you're too expensive. We're not asking you back and they're unwilling to negotiate Then it probably wasn't about price in the first place. That's a, that's, that's a sweeping generalization, but no, I think that's a good, I think that's a good approach okay. or, or a, a, a good piece of insight to that. Mm -hmm. um, getting back to our conversation about how there's no book on this. Yeah. <laughs> so now that you've been on both sides of that political process which side do you prefer do you prefer the design or the direction side Oof, that's 
a loaded question. Um, I, <laughs> Not to set any future paths in, in concrete here. I'm just asking no, uh, totally. for preference. I, I definitely prefer to be the designer. Um, I like, especially in television, I really like putting teams together. Um, I like getting a really good group of people together to make a project, uh, you know, from, from the top down and, and looking at a project and saying, okay, this is, this needs this lighting director and that programmer and this gaffer, and that's going to be the right team to, to get this thing off the ground. Um, there's, there's something still fascinating and I, and I hope that will always continue to be fascinating of, of taking something in my mind and, and putting it on stage and, you know, truly starting from the napkin sketch and getting all the way to a, a televised broadcast. That having been said, in the television world as a lighting director, I, I have an opportunity to do that a lot. Um, you know, I work with Noah Mitz on America's Got Talent and I kind of handle the band looks as it were. So we'll, you know, we'll share a concept with the creative team. And then I really get to do the soup to nuts of how many lights is it? How do we get it on stage? How do we get it off stage? What does that build look like? Mm. So th that part of my lighting direction work, I, I really truly do love. Um, but I think that is, that is more akin to design than perhaps what some of the, the other characteristics of a lighting director do, would do. Yeah. It's, it's weird because what you just kind of described sounds like the, what I think to be the TV director role, which is completely different from the touring lighting director role, uh, have you, you've done both, right? You've done live event director. Yes. You've also done television broadcast director and they're different, right? Cause what you just described. Very, very different. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we can kind of go into that. That's an interesting side topic. Uh, the touring concert lighting director is not the same as the television broadcast lighting director. And you've done both. What are the, what are the differences in your experience? So generally, I, I, think, I think the first, the, the big similarity between the two is that you are there supporting the designer's vision. Mm -hmm. Regardless of the approach, that is the end goal, which is to, to bring that designer's vision to life. In a touring yes. capacity, uh, typically you are replicating that vision night after night. Right. And trying to adjust the vision to the requirements of today's venue. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we can't, you know, on, on the tours where you aren't able to advance and, and always hang your rig in the same every night, you're coming in in the morning and they're like, okay, well, what, I can't hang this, but how, how do I retain that look? Maybe I can get those, you know, put those Sharpies up on some cases backstage or something and still get that, you know, that moment of time in the show where they, they are necessary. Uh, in, in the television world, it's, it's only happening once for the most part. So you're not trying to replicate, you're trying to support a, an overarching concept and a knowledge mm -hmm. of an aesthetic. So I might be told as a, 
you know, as a lighting director, I might be told by a lighting designer, like, hey, uh, we're doing this remote shoot now, go take this pile of gear across the street and make it look right. Um, that's, that's a very different role uh, than, mm -hmm. than what you would get on, on a tour, I, in my experience. I don't know, maybe, maybe, what, do you feel like I've, I hit the, the touring part correctly? No, you did really good. Uh, along those same lines, when, when I'm a director on a tour and the designer is there, I feel like I'm second fiddle the whole time until he or she leaves. And then I just slide one chair over and I become that person. But in the television situation, the designer is usually not even in the lead chair. They're just kind of orbiting everywhere. And the director is sitting in the lead chair, even though the designer is there. And I've always That's, felt that. Yeah. Huh. It's, it's funny. You mentioned the, the touring part. I, I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a colleague who does a lot of touring and he as a lighting director, and he was telling me that, you know, he was out on the road with the band supporting a designer's tour or vision. And, you know, one night on the bus, the band was like kicking around ideas about design. And he felt really uncomfortable because he wasn't the designer. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, well, how do I have this conversation with these people? And I, I feel like in TV, that's a lot safer. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a lot safer of an environment. I, I know if I walk away from the room for a minute and the director of the broadcast is like having a conversation with the programmer or the producer is having a conversation with that, that programmer, lighting director, uh, they're, not like they're not trying to take my job. Mm -hmm. And this, this, in this instance, you know, that lighting director was saying to me, he's like, yeah, I was really concerned that the designer would feel I was stepping on his toes. Like what a sad, it, my, my reaction was like, what a sad <laughs> way to feel that like, oh, we can't talk about a cool idea with the band and then bring that back to the lighting designer and say, well, could we do this on the next tour? Like I, that's the kind of collaboration that I, that I pine for and really love about the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the politics there are so similar but also so different. If I was on the road talking to a band and they wanted to implement something, if I was a TV director, I would just immediately do it because that's how it works. But it, having a, a rock and roll background, I would never, never think to implement something without a phone call. I mean, a bare minimum, an email saying, hey, so this is what happened. Do I have your blessing? Right. But in the television world, you're like, yeah, let's implement that and see what happens because we only have 30 minutes to make it happen. Right. And there, I mean, not, not to like say that it's a, you know, a wild, wild west of television. Um, <laughs> no. But there, you know, there definitely, I feel, and well, let's, let's even back up a step. I guess in the, the concert world, which doesn't really exist as much in television, you're doing a lot of previs. You're doing a lot of pre-production. Mm -hmm. Or, or even like actual queuing time that you don't have in TV. So right. there is a lot more of designer sitting next to lighting director saying, take these lights and do this, uh, or, or even just sitting and watching the process happen. 
So that that might lend some credence to the the difference in relationships on those two projects. Yeah. Um, this is kind of an, uh, an analogy or metaphor for it, but in rock and roll, I would never put 300 lights on a plot and then also put 200 TBD because those sort of drastic changes are never going to happen because we've already spent enough time. But in the TV world, that happens all the time. There's 500 moving lights and 400 of the exact same labeled TBD because on a whim, the director can be like, Oh my God, we have to change this. And we got to, we're going to light that. And we're going to get some streaks here and some gobos there. And the director or the designer would either say yes or no, and then let the director go with that idea. Yeah. I think the, it, it comes back a little bit to time too. Like in the, in the concert world, by the time you get to the, we are building the trusses, we are building the package, you know, for the most part, how many trucks you have, how much mm-hmm. space there is, how much power you're allotted, how much weight you have. You know, there, there are a, a lot of very specifics that drive that conversation and probably very little, trying to phrase, let I me, mean, phrase this properly. It's not that you can't change things once you get into production rehearsals, Mm -hmm. but at that point, any change is typically a a bigger thing than, oh, on this one-off, we're going to add 12, you know, magic blades over there behind the host. Um, Mm -hmm. And having that toolkit with you on site does a couple things. A, you, you can immediately act on something and B, you're you know, you have protected production by bringing those lights with you. You're, you're not paying for another truck. Um, you're not, tr- you know, hogging people's time, trying to get permission for, you know, spending another four lights worth of dollars to, to solve the shot that the director has come up with. You have those things there. You've protected it in your budget. Um, and and you you truly like you said you don't know where the director is going to point the camera. I mean, yeah, we've built this mm-hmm. stage, but there might be an interesting shot in the back of the room that we now need to support in some way. Uh, and and the more reactive that you can be to that, the better. Yeah, I I totally concur there. So one of the other major differences that I can think is pretty glaring, and I want to get your point of view on this one, is the budget with television it's a massive amount of money on mega rigs that less that stay up for about six days to a couple of weeks at the most. Whereas most tours, they need a smaller amount of lights, but for a longer time. And so it's usually a similar budget, but it's spread out over six months. Do you prefer the, the large structures that are up for a few days or do you prefer the, the smaller budgets spread out over time? Um, it's interesting. I, I, I think one of the, the big things that has pushed the concert industry forward in the last couple of years is their ability to buy specifically what they want for a show. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I want, you know, 500 of this light in an array 
I'm going to, I'm going to send that, you know, request for bid out to every shop in town and someone will, someone will pull the trigger on it and say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll take the risk. You're out for 18 months and we're pretty sure that we can recoup most of the cost on that. Um, with, with TV, I'm usually limited to, for the most part, what's in stock. Uh, and within the, the, the home of that rental shop, because we are there for such a, a short amount of time. And it, it may look like we have a lot of money, but frankly, we very often do not. Uh, and, and it is, you know, it is stretching that dollar as far as you can to, to fill the space. And, uh, you know, not only you have to light the people on stage, you have to light the audience, you got to light the room, you got to light the scenery. And then there's, you know, a band look or 12 band looks or 22 band looks or whatever Mm -hmm. that, you know, particular show has. Um, It is, plus you are servicing multiple views. Right. Right. Uh, in, In the concert world, yes, you are in a 270 environment or a 360 environment, but for the most part, your programming is based on someone sitting center front of house. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with TV, that person's eyes are moving all the time, and you have to be reactive to every single one of those angles. Oh yeah, you're lighting for so many different cameras there, and it's uh, not. And- it, it it's not like I I was using this analogy when I was teaching a TV class a couple months ago that it's a theater students like you're nothing is changing with how you do your job instead of watching the the proscenium in front of you that proscenium is now in a screen mm-hmm. and, and it changes moment to moment so you look at a moment and and you adjust your light on stage to to make that moment correct and hopefully you're collaborating with the camera director so that that when they bring their moment up you've brought your moment up. And, and frankly, that is where, that is my favorite thing about television is that you have the full control of what the audience is seeing because you, you not only can point their eyes in the right place, but you can, you, you know, you can tone all of your lights to that angle. You can make this big blowout shot or like a single shaft of light that's creating this beautiful shadow. You, mm-hmm. you so rarely have an opportunity to do that live on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a, a very cool thing that that medium allows. Yeah. So one of the things you kind of touched on is when in theater or sorry, if in rock and roll, if you have 80 lights on your plot, the audience better be able to see all 80 of those. Cause you're using that to make your scope and the size appear larger in television. If you have 500 lights, you may only see 30 of them because they're going to be lighting so many other things. They're going to be, you're going to be using 90 lights just to light the audience that nobody ever actually sees the fixtures. So, I mean, you have to be so prepared to have that many fixtures for, for a smaller impact. So your, your budget just has to be there to, to facilitate that because you're, you're really not focusing on the fixtures themselves like you do in rock and roll or, or even theater. Yeah, I think I, I think that there is a, a a little bit of a misconception of like, oh, well, we have 2,500 lights on this show. It's like, yeah, and we're lighting an entire arena and mm-hmm. we're going to shoot people, you know, we're going to film people all over the arena 
and there's all of this scenery that you know has to be lit and and, and all of these different things when you get to the the band look and it is you know 60 magic dots everyone's like but you have 2500 things why isn't that 600 magic dots and it's like well there's there's a lot of other <laughs> bits and pieces and that's yeah. all we could get on stage in that in that moment of time um yeah that's funny that comes so, up often it, you know i think about like when i'm building you know when i'm drawing a show and you know you lay in the things that you you, you can work in however direction that you want. Sometimes you start with the, the cool physical shape or sometimes you start with, okay, I know I need to light the audience. I know I need to light the room, you know, lay those things in and, and then what do you have left? Uh, I, I used, I, I'd say used to, we usually do a 4th of July show in Boston that's, it was canceled this year, but there is a, a very specific quantity of light that you need just to light the audience and the orchestra and that's 250 lights. So I have a hundred lights left to make the thing look pretty. Uh, and you can't not light the audience. Like we just can't not do that. <laughs> right. So we are out of, we're almost out of time, but I really wanted to get into one last thing that we were kind of touching on earlier. Which one do you find more creatively interesting or which one are you more enthusiastic about the ones where you have a large budget and you can kind of go carte blanche or do you prefer the ones that are on a tighter budget and they ask you to really extend yourself to generate more creativity out of less uh, which one excites you more uh well for any producers listening definitely giant budgets we sky is the <laughs> limit always we want all of the money uh and it will look beautiful the f now 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 put your earmuffs on um the i i really do enjoy the i don't want to say small budget but the some level of restriction mm -hmm. whether that is the a reality of a venue or a reality of time or something, th there's a part of my brain that likes to solve problems. And, you, you know, we kicked this conversation off talking about the, you know, the boredom buster and that, that had no, th there was no requirement. <laughs> None. We, had to, we had to use the Ayrton product line. That was it. Uh, you know, 750 lights later, there we were. Um, I also did, there's a, a a shop up in Seattle, R90 Lighting, and they ran a previs contest a couple weeks ago. And theirs was the complete opposite of that, which was you have an SL260, which is a very small festival stage. You have $10,000 and you've got to, you know, fit within the weight and size and dollar limit of- Oh, interesting. Of that thing. And it was much more interesting, not more interesting, but it kicked my brain in a different direction because I was truly sitting there and saying like, okay, the, the light with the color wheel is 75 bucks a week and the color mixing light is 125 a week. So for the extra 50 bucks, am I better off with two more lights or is the color like those? Interesting. You know, though, you, then, then you're thinking about, you know, in that particular instance, it was program a song. So I was like, okay, I can actually probably get away with the color wheel light because I know that the song is going to be red and white. And I know that, you know, the two flags are right next to each other. So I can bounce back and forth, no problem. And, 
in that instance, yes, four more lights was worth it. Wow, that's fun. I, I'll have to look into that one to see how that, uh, that competition went. But yes, I find myself agreeing with you. I like it when we're, there's a certain amount of restriction. Uh, one of the ones recently that I've been dealing with for a long time is a no haze restriction. And at first I hated that. I'm like, come on, you guys, please let me use some haze. But then after you, once you flip your mind to just accept that, then you can kind of move forward and, and try and figure out what you can do that's more creative and you can kind of come up with new solutions. It sounds like yeah. that's the way you're headed too. You're like, well, no, once, once I accept my the parameters, then there's a box that I can be creative in. Definitely. It's, it's funny. The no haze thing is like, I, I haven't had any shows in a while that have had that restriction, but when you think about when you do have haze, you're, you know, constantly cognizant of every single light in the room. You know, if I, if I need to light a person, that beam is visible. When you take haze out of the equation, you can suddenly light that person with, you know, a bunch of different angles and colors and, and reveal the shape in a unique way and not worry about what that looks like in the air. Mm -hmm. So like, there you go. That's, that's a challenge that, that I think would be exciting. Um, it is fascinating. It, yeah. The, I mean, we all get, got into this business to, I don't want to say to solve problems, but that's basically what we're doing, right? Like we're taking darkness and putting light up there. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to summarize. We are just taking darkness and putting light up there. Well, right on, Mike. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I love getting to know more about you and thank you so much for your submission. Uh, this has been great. I really appreciate the getting to know you better. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Uh, I will put a link to your website. It is innovativeintensity.com. That's where you can check out all of Michael's newest projects and see what's new. All of his, uh, including his Instagram feed is all on there. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks again. <laughs>